Welcome to the July Journal Club podcast. We are again joined by Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Director for the Alfred Emergency and Trauma Centre and Research Fellow Dr. Miles Ganeshan. For our third paper, we will also be joined by a special guest, Dr. Laxmir Gurvandasamy, our current ASAM Victorian Training Representative. We will review three papers today, covering topics of effectiveness of a few anti-epileptic drugs in treating toxin-related status epilepticus, use of Kelly clamps versus fine artery forceps in decompressing traumatic pneumothorax and hemothorax, as well as implicit gender bias during procedural competency assessments of emergency medicine trainees. Paper one. Paper one is titled Treatment of Toxin-Related Status Epilepticus with Levetiracetam, Phosphenitoin or Valproate in Patients Enrolled in the Established Status Epilepticus Treatment Trial. The clinical question asked was, are Levetiracetam, Valproate and Phosphenitoin effective in treating toxin-related status epilepticus? The paper uses data from the Established Status Epilepticus Treatment Trial, which was a prospective, randomised, adaptive, double-blinded study performed across 58 EDs in the United States from 2015-2019. The study included patients who were two years old or more, who presented with convulsive seizures lasting longer than five minutes, and received adequate doses of benzodiazepines before enrolment. In adults or children weighing more than 32 kilos, cumulative dose on benzodiazepine was 4 mg IV lorazepam, 10 mg IV or IM midazolam, or 10 mg IV diazepam. In children weighing less than 32 kilos, 0.1 mg per kilo IV lorazepam, 0.3 mg per kilo IV midazolam, or 0.2 mg per kilo IV diazepam. The study excluded patients with seizures related to post-anoxia, cardiac arrest, acute trauma, or hypo or hypoglycemia. They also excluded patients who received non-benzodiazepine anticonvulsants as first line and patients who were intubated. They compared three different interventions where three different second-line agents were administered, being levetiracetam, 60 milligrams per kilo, up to 4,500 milligrams, or phosphenitoin with 20 milligrams phenytoin equivalents per kilo, up to 1,500 milligram phenytoin equivalents, of our proate, 440 milligrams per kilo, up to 3,000 milligrams. The primary outcome they looked at was the absence of clinical apparent seizures and improvement in the level of consciousness one hour after start of study drug administration, without additional administration of anti-seizure medication, which included induction agents like propofol and ketamine. It was assessed by ED treating clinician at the time, but later on, four neurologists reviewed medical records to confirm the primary outcome, ascertain the time before the trial drug was given, time to seizure termination, and the seizure precipitant. A fifth adjudicator also reviewed the medical records of each participant where the seizure precipitant was categorized as toxin-related to determine the specific causative agent. So what were the findings? Out of 249 adults and 229 children enrolled in the established status epilepticus treatment trial, toxin-related seizures occurred in 29 adults and one child. The most common toxin-related precipitants were alcohol withdrawal and cocaine, with 11 of 30 patients in each category. For alcohol-related seizures, 64% of the patients responded to second-line therapy. Treatment success was 3 out of 3 for levetiracetam, 3 out of 6 for valproate, and 1 out of 2 for phosphenitoin. For cocaine-related seizures, only 18% responded to second-line therapy. Treatment success was 1 out of 7 for levetiracetam, 
zero out of one for valproate and one out of three for phosphenitoin. One patient who used cocaine and an opioid who received phosphenitoin developed life-threatening hypotension. So the authors concluded that toxin-related benzodiazepine refractory status epilepticus was successfully treated with a single dose of second-line anti-seizure medication in 42% of patients. Of the three drugs, levetiracetam appears to be the best option for treatment of toxin-related seizures, especially in treating patients with status epilepticus precipitated by alcohol withdrawal, as 100% of these patients achieved primary outcome. Both phosphenitoin and valproate perform poorly with toxin-related status epilepticus. So Peter, what are your thoughts about this trial and the study? I struggled with this study. Um, it seems to be like a sub-study of a much larger study. So I wonder whether they're trying to make something from not much. At the end of the day, there's issues around the dosages, um, you know, which is the most appropriate dose for each of the, the candidates. There's issues around like very small numbers, and especially when you subdivide them into alcohol, cocaine, and other toxins. You know, like the way I was taught was the treatment of alcohol withdrawal is benzodiazepines and then more benzodiazepines. And I think that still holds true, to be honest. And they, I'm not sure that they necessarily uh, gave sufficient benzodiazepines for the alcohol withdrawal group. And then once you get into some of these other drug uh, groups, I mean, the numbers are so small, I'm not sure you could conclude much at all. It does appear that Capra is relatively safe and relatively, you know, it works. But whether it's better than benzos or better than others, I don't know. I mean, the, the side effect profile of phenytoin and so forth is such that I think most people are moving more towards uh, Kepra and, you know, I think it fits with our current practice. So I, I don't think it sort of puts a nail in the coffin of any drug or treatment regime. It sort of roughly aligns with what we might do, but it's, it's, it's all a, a bit of, it's a messy sort of sub-study of a much larger study, which sort of, you know, roughly goes with our current clinical practice. Yeah, I was surprised um, they were studying phenytoin and um, valproate in toxin-related seizures because we were taught to sort of avoid those and just use benzos. And I think we talked about this quite a bit in the journal club. Um, so, Miles, I know you've got a special interest in toxicology, actually. What are your thoughts about this paper and the findings? And uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm not a toxicologist, just, just something I enjoy. But um, so, like Peter says, this was a... Uh, a sub-study focusing on the patients that possibly had some element of a toxicological seizure. It's worth noting that they, they felt that out of this toxicological subset, 17 out of the 30 patients had epilepsy or had a history of epilepsy, which obviously kind of clouds the results and in terms of how effective these, these drugs were. The traditional toxicological treatment, so treatment for toxicological seizures, as you mentioned, is just benzo, 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 goes against what I've been taught and what I'm comfortable with giving something like uh, phosphenitoin for a toxicological seizure, it's a sodium channel blocker. And then evidence that we're getting from studies out of Australia is that any recreational drug you have on the street 
may not be what you think you're buying. It might have anything in it. Um, so you, you could be giving someone who's taken a sodium channel blocker um, a sodium channel blocker. Um, in the case of cocaine, that's definitely the case. But we don't have too much evidence for toxicological uh, complications. So I think any focus on it is useful or at least interesting. Um, but this was a bit of uh, salami slicing, looking at a, a much larger study um, and then trying to focus on something um, that the study wasn't really designed to look at. It's interesting to read, but if we were designing our, our own study or we were to look at the study to specifically look at this issue, so how do we treat toxicological related seizures, it would look slightly different. I would be, what I'd be interested in, I'm not averse to intubating someone with a toxicological seizure. They're going to be young. There's not likely not going to be any issues with intubating them. Um, and the idea would be that when the toxidrome wears off, we're going to extubate them. And in the case of people who've taken cocaine, I'm worried that they're going to have an intracranial bleed. So if they're having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, which prevents me getting them to the CT scanner, um, I'm going to intubate them early um, to get that to get that invest investigation done. Yeah, it was very interesting that in this paper, you know, the, the median seizure time before second-line drug was given was 55 minutes. But an hour and in real life <laughs> the patient would have been intubated and probably have gone to ct already and propofol infusion started so that was a bit interesting yeah i, I did yeah that's something i should have mentioned i think the time in in certainly in australian eds i don't think people would wait more than 20 or 30 minutes before moving on to a second line drug so that that was a bit strange i'm not sure what what they were thinking there yeah and the other question I had was like the, and what we discussed in Journal Club was the doses of benzos they had given the patient before they gave the second line was quite low. It's 10 milligram of midazolam or 10 milligram of diazepam. Peter and Miles, like in real life, what, what doses do you find that you give of benzos before you give a second line drug even for these group of patients? Probably a lot more. <laughs> Uh, so it seems like they're following the, the normal protocol for uh, treating status epilepticus, so two lots of benzos and then a, another agent. I'm also yeah. not sure why there was a delay to giving that that second line agent. It might have been the, the research protocol itself, so randomizing these mm. patients, I'm not sure. But yeah, so it was certainly if it's toxicological, it'll just be without um, considering what they've done in this paper, it would just be benzo, benzo, benzo until we have yeah. to, until we have to intubate them. I think if I think what the outcome of interest I'd want to know is we can use these agents if um, if you wanted to examine their effectiveness, but see if they're benzo sparing. So if we can provide you have the means to to intubate and to monitor to see if they're having an ongoing seizure. So if you can have continuous EEG monitoring, see if it's benzo sparing, and if the ICU length of stay and time to extubation is shorter by by using these, um, I, I reckon that would probably be a a more appropriate outcome of interest. That's a good point, Miles. I think the I think this protocol was designed for non-toxicological epilepsy uh, or, or seizure, and that's why it seems a little bit strange when you put it in the context of a toxicological uh, seizure. So, would you say you know a, a possible thing we can consider is after using benzos, benzos, and benzos, and possibly intubating these group of patients that you might consider giving a dose of Keppra to see whether you can spare more benzos if the patient is still seizing? Or would this paper really change your practice at all? I wouldn't be averse to using Keppra in a independent, you know, say an alcoholic or because the other thing, as evidenced by this paper, often you don't know whether they've got a past history of uh, epilepsy or, you know, underlying epileptogenic activity. So, you know, I, I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to use it. 
And, and that's what we would probably do anyway. I reckon, yeah, for the undifferentiated seizure, so a patient that just comes in and, and is in status, I'd be comfortable giving Kepra. Wondering whether this paper has made me more comfortable or not, but um, I guess it's it's not really an issue I, I was comfortable to begin with. It's not a safety study, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, in the whatever number of patients, they didn't have too many problems. But yeah, as I say, once you get sort of down below the alcohol group, the other patients are, you know, very small numbers, aren't they? Hmm. Paper two. Paper two is titled Plural Decompression Procedural Safety for Traumatic Pneumothorax and Hemothorax, Kelly Clamps versus Fine Artery Forceps. The clinical question was, what is the difference in force required to puncture simulator pleura comparing Kelly Clamps to Fine Artery Forceps? This was a single operator unblinded simulation study. A thoracic mannequin was fitted with simulated parietal pleura. The intervention and comparison were using fine artery forceps versus Kelly clamp for parietal pleural puncture, performed by a single experienced operator. The outcome looked at was the median pleural puncture force measured using fine artery forceps versus Kelly clamps for parietal pleural puncture. The study found that the median pleural puncture force was 52.91 newton for Kelly clamps and 10.7 newton for fine artery forceps. So the authors concluded that there is a significant reduction in the force required to puncture simulated parietal pleura when using fine artery forceps compared to when using Kelly clamps. Whilst this was not an in vivo study, it could be argued based on this study that the risk of pulmonary injury can be reduced by using fine artery forceps rather than Kelly clamps when performing emergency pleural puncture. So what are your thoughts on this study that was you know, um, published by our own Alfred E.D., <laughs> Peter and Miles? You go first, Miles. When, when I read it, it was more a kind of thought-provoking thing. I think it's kind of common sense that if you use uh, something with a smaller surface area, you're going to need less force to, to puncture. And, and that's what this, this paper demonstrates. Um, I think the, the limitations of it, first of all, is that it, it is on stimulated fluor. It's not on a real patient. But it, is, it does kind of make you aware that um, in the past, we, we started doing or doing chest strains because the thought was that we need to get the drain in when we're trying to do a pleural decompression. And then now, now we feel we just need to make the hole um, to decompress the chest. So when the primary aim becomes making the hole, we don't need, doesn't necessarily need to be that larger hole. So we can use the fine artery forceps and there are advantages to doing that in that the um, there's more, first of all, the force is less. The, the Alfred technique is to use one hand. So that means you're less likely to, to cause damage and you've got more control over what you're doing because you're not having to use your entire body or your shoulder to try and to make this, this puncture. So having read it, I think it makes me more inclined to use um, fine artery forceps, even though um, the message isn't necessarily one that we would we would consider to be groundbreaking. How about you, Peter? Well, I think methodologically there are holes you can drive a truck through, but at a, as Miles says, you know, it's single operator, single, uh, you know, simulated, and uh, you know, it's you know, it's unblinded. All all things that you could say would lead to a huge degree of bias. However, at a common sense level, if, if you're using a smaller surface area to puncture a hole through something, you you will need less force. So. That makes sense. The question then is, once you've got the hole, what do you do with it? And, you know, in terms of, you know, when you go to put your tube in, do you then hold that, depending, you know, let's say it's a big person with muscles or fat, you know, is having a big force that makes it 
easier, if you like, to maintain that track. So the question is, I guess, do you then use a larger uh, force of, as a secondary item? So there's a few things around the methodology, I guess, that would need explanation. But in terms of the actual puncture through the pleura, there's little doubt that you would need less force by using a you know mosquito force or a similar. I, you know, I have no problem with that. And I think, you know, in a thin person, that's what I would do. Uh, as I say, in a larger person, there are some mechanical issues that make it quite, uh, you know, you, you might have to change your technique. But this, you know, like if you really wanted to prove that this caused less harm, you couldn't use a blinded thing, but you would need to do it in a, you know, real setting with and you know do 50 cases one way and 50 cases another way and hopefully in a randomized way and see whether there was increased complications by doing one technique versus the other i suspect it's got more to do with the operator than it has to do with whether you use a, a smaller forcer for a larger forcer but as i say you know in terms of getting through the pleura i think a smaller forcer in a thin person makes some sense hmm. So potentially using the smaller fine artery forceps to puncture, but then if you need a bigger hole, just use the Kelly clamps to dilate a bit more. So in the journal club, I think quite a few consultants were there in our journal club as well. And the consensus was that this is what they're doing anyway in real life, that when it's thinner, the patient's thinner, they use fine artery forceps. And when the patient's bigger, they just go straight to the Kelly clamp um, because they find that a bit time saving. Any other comments about this paper? I think I think this paper would would influence my my practice. So I I traditionally use a, a two handed technique for doing pleural decompression, um, just because I I learned to do chest strains away from the Alfred. But in a smaller patient, it doesn't require um, as much force, and I feel like I can uh, make enough big enough hole. Then I'll be using the the artery forceps from now on. Paper three. For our third paper, we are joined by our special guest today, Dr. Lakshmi Govandasamy. She is our current Victorian ASM trainee rep, a public health physician, and is also currently undertaking a PhD exploring gender and leadership development in emergency medicine. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Lakshmi. Thank you so much, Betha. It's a pleasure to join this group. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you. So our third paper is titled... Assessment of Implicit Gender Bias During Evaluation of Procedural Competency Among Emergency Medicine Residents. The clinical question asked was, is there implicit gender bias in assessments of procedural competency in ED trainees? And is the gender of the evaluator associated with identified implicit gender bias? The design was a cross-sectional blinded study performed from 2018 to 2020 in the United States. The target population was emergency medicine faculty members who were recruited as evaluators from different states in the USA, and emergency medicine residents from a single EM residency program were recruited to serve as proceduralists. Emergency medicine residents performed three procedures in a simulated environment, the procedures being lumbar puncture, thoracosomy tube insertion, and internal jugular CVC insertion under ultrasound guidance. They were blinded to the intent of the study. Proceduralists were filmed performing each procedure from two different viewpoints simultaneously by two different cameras. One viewpoint was hands-on and gender-blinded view. The other viewpoint was a wide-angle, whole-body, gender-evident view. Emergency medicine faculty members and evaluators viewed videos in random order. They assessed procedural competency on a global rating scale, where six domains were clearly stipulated and were assessed. For each procedural video, a score of 1 to 5 was selected for each domain. The primary outcome was difference in mean scores obtained from the gender-blinded view and the gendered evident view between male and female proceduralists. 
The secondary outcome was difference in blinded versus unblinded scores across proceduralist gender according to the gender of the evaluators. So what were the findings? 10 emergency medicine residents serve as proceduralists, five of which were men and the other five were women. 51 emergency attending physicians were enrolled from 19 states in USA. 22 were male participants and 29 were female participants. The mean age was 37 years. Each evaluator assessed all 60 procedures, 30 being gender-blinded and 30 being gender-evident. The male proceduralist gender was not associated with greater score difference than the female proceduralist gender. The mean score for women in the gender-evident view was 3.65 compared with 3.53 in the gender-blinded view. The mean score for men was 3.75 in the gender-evident view and 3.69 in the gender-blinded view, with a difference of 0.06. The gender of the evaluator was not associated with difference in mean scores. Male evaluators scored both female and male proceduralists slightly lower when the gender was evident versus blinded. So the authors concluded that there were no differences found in the assessment of procedural competency based on the gender of the proceduralist or the gender of the faculty evalu evaluators. The findings suggest that implicit gender bias in the direct observation of simulated procedures is unlikely to be the source of established gender disparities. So Peter, this is this paper had quite an interesting design, but I thought the findings were somewhat unexpected. Um, what are your thoughts on the study? Uh, it's interesting because, as everyone knows, this is a sort of area of scrutiny, um, comment, controversy, and this is an attempt to get around the obvious, you know, sort of constructs that that make it difficult to undertake this sort of analysis. My problem with it is, you know, no matter what you think about whether these assessments are true, you know, are truly biased or not, there are sort of some methodological issues that I had difficulty with. And, and we discussed this uh, in the journal club, but, you know, I can sort of tell, you know, with even, you know, even if you only show me the hands, I could sort of more or less tell that it's a female hand rather than a male hand. And the other thing was these supervisors or assessors or, or um, seniors may well even know some of these people, you know, it's, it's, uh, and I reckon I could, you know, I could probably take a guess at your hands. I might be wrong, but, uh, you know, like, so, Although it's sort of semi-blinded, it's not really blinded. So I, I think there are some issues there in terms of the methodology itself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it's good. I think it's, you know, it, it takes away the obvious in-your-face stuff, which which I think is good. But I'm not sure it's definitive in terms of its conclusions. Mm -hmm. But but I think it's important, you know, at the same time, I do think it's important to undertake these sort of simulations just to sort of get a bit of a feel for how you might uh, look at these things more objectively. And, you know, no matter how much you try, there are sort of intrinsic biases and, um, you know, unmeasured confounders in, in the way that you look at these things. So I think it, it is important to undertake these studies, but I just felt a, a little bit underwhelmed by the methodology. Uh, but I'd be interested to know what Laxmi said. Yes, Laxmi, what are your thoughts? I'm inclined to agree with you on a lot of aspects, Peter, actually. So I thought 
What, one thing that I find interesting about this particular studies approach is that it is trying to separate our procedural assessment from a lot of the other relational factors that we know influence assessment when it's occurring in real life and on the floor. And I think even when you look at something like ASIM's assessment structure, if you're doing a DOPS or a Mini-CX, there are a lot of additional factors um, in terms of communication style, in terms of consultation, situational awareness that would not be captured um, in this particular study's approach to procedural competence that are a core part of our approach as clinicians in emergency medicine. Um, and I think that some of those other global aspects and relational aspects are really important to consider because that's where I think a lot of gender bias and other biases and um, you know, structural power dynamics can really influence both the practitioner and the assessor. And I think that in some ways, it's not unsurprising to me that taking away some of those aspects in this study, um, in some ways, I, I think of this study as something like an in vitro rather than in vivo study of procedural competence. And so I'm not particularly surprised that there's not a, um, a support for gender differences in assessment or in assessor results and that that's not a statistically significant finding in this study. And I agree, there are some methodological limitations, exactly as Peter's outlined in terms of the degree of blinding. And you wonder whether it's even possible to you know, meaningfully achieve that in this type of study and what it would add ultimately um, to our understanding of gender bias in the emergency medicine context. So I'm not sure that this necessarily needs to be repeated, but it does raise some interesting questions um, in terms of assessing procedural competence for trainees. Should we perhaps move to a model that is looking purely at the procedure um, or should we continue with what we have currently in ASIN looking at our DOPS, for example, and considering some of the broader factors that are relevant to procedures in practice, even if they are perhaps more vulnerable to some of those um, biases stepping in? Mm. And so, Lakshmi, as you know, as a female ASIM trainee and also the Victorian ASIM trainee rep at the moment and doing you know, like a research project um, in this area of gender and leadership and development, how do you think implicit gender bias could be in play for the ASIM trainees in terms of, you know, like our progress in training and also WBA assessments? Like what are your thoughts on, you know, more broadly outside of the paper? Yeah, so looking at gender bias, I guess, more structurally, um, I tend not to use the word implicit bias as much um, because I, I, I work from a model um, where I'm trying to think about the structures that we can change to improve gender equity for all people. And although I identify as a woman, um, I've written previously and I you know, try to adopt a lens that recognises that gender occurs across the spectrum and that there are issues for non-binary and transgender people as well that goes beyond this um, female, male or women and men binary. And I think that's quite important that we try to um, adopt a more inclusive approach and to recognise that beyond gender, there are also other identities that are really relevant when we think about power dynamics in training and when we think about power dynamics um, in our experience of practice. So that's my, my initial caveats. And then to launch in, I think certainly, although ASIM has done some fantastic work as an organisation um, in supporting increased female representation, both organisationally, when you look at the changes, for example, in the board and committee membership over the last few years, um, and in supporting female participation in ASIM training, which is just about to achieve parity. I think the last workforce report shows 49%. ASIM, as with many other medical organisations, has still a persisting leadership gap when it comes to gender representation, but also more broadly in terms of representation across other elements of diversity. And my research is trying to examine how and why that leadership gap can occur 
in emergency medicine and the factors that drive it. And I think that that's really relevant because there are some quite pragmatic policy outcomes and structural changes that could be more supportive of diversity and inclusion in the emergency department. And one of the reasons that I'm quite passionate about this is some of the research that has emerged, particularly from the United States, to look at the difference in outcomes when there is physician concordance um, between patients and practitioners, particularly around gender and race and ethnicity. And I'm quite interested in the ways in which creating more inclusive emergency medicine leadership might have outcome, um, different outcomes and implications for some of the more marginalised members of our community. So that's my long spiel. I hope that answers some of your questions. No, oh, certainly. No, thank you for that. I'll just maybe reference that back to, to this paper. So just the, the paper that this paper references in terms of the difference in milestone achievements between male and female trainees um, back in the, in the States, there was four specific domains that they felt that at the end of training, male trainees were outperforming female trainees, but only by a small margin. But what was statistically significant, uh, but a very small actual margin, was emergency stabilization, um, the approach to procedures, airway and vascular access. So in, in terms of how I would perhaps think of that is things that you have less of access to on the floor. It's more of an opportunistic thing. So if you are not creating an inclusive environment where people feel comfortable, they're maybe not going to put their hand up or be forceful to go and get those things. And with that small difference, it may be, it was done over all the, all the ED training programs in the States, but that may indicate that there, there is a, a bigger difference in certain departments and no difference in the others, uh, which is something that we all, all, you know, always need to be kind of vigilant of and something we just need to make ourselves aware, aware of in our individual departments. I think, Miles, that's a good point. I think this came up at the Journal Club too, didn't it? The, um, this was an academic department where I think there was fairly good uh, you know, representation. And so it may not represent emergency departments across the states. So I think, well, you know, like it's like all these things, you know, what happens, say, at a place like the Alfred doesn't really represent what happens in the rest of the world. So yeah. I think you need to be very careful about drawing conclusions from academic centres mm. as well. And extending on your comments, Miles, I think there are some interesting theoretical elements that could be influencing people's performance. And so thinking about things like stereotype and identity threats and the experiences that marginalised trainees might be having on the floor, things like misidentification of female physicians, things like um, hearing you know, at the extreme end, racist and sexist abuse or comments from patients and colleagues alike, um, or even more marginalising sort of um, less extreme comments that might undermine, you know, people's thinking around, you know, certain practitioners and their approaches to procedures. And those kinds of um, factors can create a milieu in which some trainees may be perceived to underperform um, and actually can be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, particularly around stereotype threat, where these marginalised identity practitioners might underperform because of the additional cognitive threats that they experience mm. um, in that non-inclusive environment. And I think that's something that all of us, whether we're in a centre of excellence or an academic centre or working in other places, can try to influence in terms of how we take our approach on the floor and how we try to create a safe learning environment for everyone. Mm. All very good points. Thank you so much, everyone. And I suppose one last one I want to make as well is that, you know, this paper looked at procedural competency, but, you know, there are also other more subjective assessments, like, you know, the assessor assessing someone being a team leader or talking about a CVD, how they approach things, you know. So these are all less regimented, sort of, they probably have a less regimented marking scheme and, you know, it's very subtle 
um, implicit biases might be in play. And certainly this paper didn't look into these sort of assessments, just procedural assessments. So, yeah, no, that was all very interesting discussion and really exciting session. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, were there any other last comments by anyone before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, it does raise the question, you know, I, I've never really come down firmly on one way or the other, but, you know, in terms of procedural and on the floor competence versus, you know, what we test in exams, which is, you know, like you can test knowledge with a multiple choice test and you can make that pretty, like, who knows who's, who, you know, it's just anonymous. But once you come to these subjective things, like did they do that well, it's very difficult to get around any bias or whatever in the assessor. And I, I'm not, you know, I, some ways I think it would be better to do that centrally or at least to have, you know, someone outside the shop come in and look at the person. You know, I, I think there are all sorts of biases in, you know, like working with someone and and then saying, oh, they've done it, they've done a good job type of stuff. Uh, you know, like I'm, I, I'm not a big believer in the WBAs and the case-based discussions and whatever, but at the same time, I haven't got an answer as to what what would be better. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. And Luxie, were you going to say something? Um, yeah, I was just going to add that I think I agree with you, Bertha, about your earlier comment that I think looking just at procedural competence is probably um, a very narrow scope with which to try and assess gender bias that trainees and physicians might experience more broadly in emergency medicine. There are some really interesting qualitative papers, particularly around female leadership of resuscitation um, and how that might be perceived differently um, than the male leadership. Um, and I think that that is, you know, a core part of our job. But more broadly, there's also structural challenges just in terms of work-life balance, expectation of parenting, you know, recruitment and hiring and career advancement processes. And those are shared not just in ED, but beyond in medicine, healthcare and in other industries. So I think, you know, things like the gender pay gap are all very relevant to emergency medicine as well. And none of that will come through in a procedural competence paper, which is why there's always scope for more research, says the PhD student. <laughs> Good night, Twanda. <laughs> <laughs> awesome thank you everyone for joining us today and um thank you again Laxmi, for joining us thank you my pleasure thank you very much thank for you. having me